Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, I am bringing back something that uh, for you dedicated listeners, you can actually go back on SoundCloud. We have playlists, and there is a playlist that includes our episodes where we did this before. Um, We haven't done it in a little while. Um, The idea is... uh, we, you, I have two minutes, or Corey has two minutes, and uh, we each uh, talk about a film, but we only have two minutes to talk about it. However, it, I'm bending the rules a little bit. If the both of us have seen it, that gives us double time, because the idea is we both have to... We're, we're kind of racing with each other on our, our shoulders. <laughs> we're kind of doing like... We're, it's kind of like a two... Le- a a four-leg... Uh, a three-legged race. Yeah, I should mention... This will probably be a little different than when you and Andrew did the two-minute movie mile because you and I live together, so there's a much greater overlap in terms of our viewing. There's than... some. there. I know that there are at least one or two films, or at least one in particular, that you did watch without me. Yeah, now, you told me to document the movies I watched by myself without you. Here, let me bring up my letterbox list. So and I said I was going to do that, and I documented one of them. So you got to have the, uh, you got, oh, I'm at 7,600 films. Uh, you got to have your, uh, you got to have your own diary. Yeah, so I promise for the next podcast, I will actually do what I told you I was going to do <laughs> and right, document my right. movies. But I remember two movies that I watched without you. All right. Well, you know what? Let's get started, though. We'll, we'll, we'll switch off. We'll, we'll talk about films that we watched together, and then I'll also talk about films I watched on my own. Uh, and I'll talk about the two movies that I remember that I watched okay. on my own. Okay. Now, I am going to... Uh, hopefully, I can do this right. Oh, uh, timer. Let's see if I get two minutes. Okay, and I'm going to start now. Uh, no, actually, we'll do four minutes again because we're doing this together. Remember, teamwork makes a dream work. <laughs> and uh, so we start now. And uh, we got to talk about the snowman. He calls himself the snowman killer. He's completely insane. Keep the front door open. I'm thinking that he's going after women that he disapproves of. The only thing we know for sure is that he's playing games with us. We finally saw the snowman, and it was glorious. Okay, for those of you who might have not... I'm sure some of you might have heard about it because the trailer was played pretty often at the film at the movies. Um... This uh, was something I was curious about, not because it got good reviews, but because it was called a monumental disaster. We like car crashes. Occasionally, you gotta see the Hollywood car crash. You, you gotta stop and roll down your window and look at Michael Fassbender in his uh, tidy whities uh, <laughs> in all of his disastrous glory. Um, to give you an idea of what this movie is, this is a film where... Michael Fassbender plays a character named Harry Hole. Let that sink in. Harry <laughs> Hole. Even though it's supposed to be sounding like something different in Norway, they decided to keep it like Hole and not Hole. Um, and by the way, everybody in this movie, for some reason, 
if they don't have Swedish accents, they have vaguely British accents. Yeah, there's lots of wandering accent font, and that's not even getting into the Wilford Brimley narration. Oh my god, oh we gotta get into that. Oh, so Val Kilmer is in this movie. After he had a stroke, or something, no, he had throat surgery, but he might as well have had a stroke. And he now, I guess... From what you told me, he doesn't have good use of his voice anymore. Yeah, so I read that he had to get surgery on his throat after throat cancer, which means it's not that he can't speak at all, Mm -hmm. but his voice is so diminished, he can't speak well enough to act. No, no, he cannot. And it's, it's, they decided to get someone to dub him, and it is like... It, it not only does it not sound like him, it comically sounds not like him. It sounds like Wilford Brimley if he was doing a Bane imitation. <laughs> Why did I just... <laughs> I'm going to go Like, it was like that. Why what happened to you, Valkyrie? Why didn't they cast this man? Why didn't they just cast someone to, else maybe, who can talk? Well, it, and also... If this was maybe 20 years ago, I might get it because he used to have marquee value. But when was the last time someone saw the name Val Kilmer was like, ooh, I gotta go see that. Yeah. Not that his character even needs to be no, in the film. No, and in he doesn't. No, and that's the other thing. This is a film where 15% of the script wasn't shot. This is according to the director. Now, I have to wonder, though, if maybe the director's deflecting a little blame because, well, who knows? Here's the craziest part of this. This has an editing credit for Thelma Schoonmaker, <laughs> three-time Academy Award-winning editor of Martin Scorsese films, Thelma Schoonmaker. And Scorsese is executive producer on this, too. That's like Spielberg having, like, an executive producer credit on, like, I, I, I don't know, like... Uh, like Battlefield Earth or something. <laughs> it's like, it's bizarre. This whole movie's so bizarre. There are parts of it that are just dull. Yes. Too. There, there, you do have to go through about 40 or to 50% of dullness. It's not like it's an even split either. There are times where the movie's just plodding along and it's very uninteresting. And then there are other times where you get like J.K. Simmons with a British accent. Yeah, so the plotting of this movie is incomprehensible. And it's crazy, and don't see it in the theater, but no. it was fun to make fun of at home. Yeah, now that's on DVD, everybody should go check it out, post-haste. Um, so, that was our first film. Uh, now, I'd like to talk uh, for a minute about uh, uh, Man Bites Dog, which I saw again uh, the other day. Um, this is a French film that uh, came out in the early 90s. It is one of the... I forgot how brutal this film is. So what this movie is about, for those of you who haven't seen it, it has a different title in France, uh, and I forget what it translates to. I think it translates to something like where, where it's happening around you or something like that. The whole movie is shot like a mockumentary or like a documentary where a camera crew is falling around this very charismatic, very opinionated very french guy who is killing people that's basically what he's doing and this camera crew at first at first you think that maybe they're following him to be like a quasi verite type of thing but no they're following him 
and soon they become part of it and they become part they they become part of some killings it almost has a quality like spinal tap in a way because members of the crew keep on getting killed off too when like the the, the main character is shooting at people and it becomes like in spinal tap when they just keep replacing drummers <laughs> so it's a very dark comedy about again a guy who's going around killing people and shot like you know like a found footage movie um and i don't know you need a strong stomach for it uh, i know you do so maybe you would like it in a way it feels like it's also kind of skewering uh, godard movies from the early 60s which always yeah. a nice thing to do always a nice thing. yeah it's it's very much like i think watching it again i i noticed breathless was really on its mind and so um yeah it's on the criterion collection so if you've seen it uh i really well hopefully you've seen it if not go check it out um so we have that um you have a movie that you watched and i'm curious to hear your thoughts so starting now me before you yes i basically the material did not translate very well from book to screen because the premise of the movie is both far-fetched but and conventional because it involves a woman who becomes a caretaker for a quadriplegic man and they fall in love in the book the relationship and the characters have depth and complexity in the movie they don't and the author adapted the the author of the book adapted the movie oh she did okay so it hits all the major plot beats but the problem is the strength of the book was not in the plotting the strength of the book was in the gradual development of the relationship and in the depth of the character development that doesn't really work and frankly certain things that i found quite heartwarming on the page are just really corny when you watch them well it's hard to sometimes translate dialogue and emotion like that like because as a reader you can read you can get something out of it that is is like personal so, but then actors doing it you're kind of relying on amelia clark's eyebrows <laughs> oh amelia clark's eyebrows were my favorite thing about this movie because they were incredibly expressive the movie wasn't awful there were a few individual scenes that i enjoyed Amelia Clark had amazing eyebrows and an amazing wardrobe, and she's gorgeous. And <laughs> I love that those are the things that you can see about her performance. I showed you the final scene in this movie where, spoiler alert, the quadriplegic man kills himself, and it's metaphorically represented with a floating leaf, and you laughed your face off because it was yeah. terrible. So yeah, obviously. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's two minutes for that. Um, we now need a four minute, we need a, a, a little bit of a sprint time so that we can talk about Wish Upon. I wish Darcy Chapman would just go rot. I can wish for anything, money, Get in! What is happening right now? Love. Did that just happen? There have been others who've had the box. They and everyone they loved all died. When the music ends, the blood price is paid. 
Oh, yes. Which I might have brought up before on the podcast when Andrew was here, but we need to talk about it again. Now, we've seen, we saw Wish Upon in the theater when it came out, because we're awesome, and then we watched it again this weekend. Yes, um, so for those of you who don't know, Wish Upon is a, uh, a teenage horror movie where um, this girl, uh, her mother dies, the star of the film. We don't quite know why, but, you know, we'll find out, obviously. Then uh, Ryan Phillippe, we cut ahead like 10 years later, and this girl's father is played by Ryan Phillippe, who for some reason is a dumpster diver. <laughs> and daughter's like, shut up, Dad, don't come to school and dumpster dive, you're embarrassing me. Anyway, father finds a wish box, a uh, Chinese wish box. The daughter gets it and starts making incredibly shallow, terrible wishes, which involve, like, uh, wishing the bratty uh, uh, bully at the school would rot, uh, that she, that her grandfather or uncle or whoever left her like all the, her money, all the money in the will, you know, her father, her father was cool. <laughs> That's an actual wish in this movie. It's and like... then Ryan Phillippe has saxophone solos. <laughs> Wait, and like her, and like her friends are looking at her father. Like he's so hot. What is this movie? What's amazing, though, is the lead character's friends actually skewer her for being so shallow and terrible, and it's actually well, pretty cool. Well, they skewer her in one minute, and then the next minute they go... But bias things. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They, they skewer her, though, after she's taken them all out and bought them, like, $500 handbags and whatever, and, like all this magical money that just drops on their laps, like because of a wish. And Oh yeah. The other thing too, is that it's, it's a monkey's paw story mixed with final destination because this movie is also very much in love with having lots and lots of very gruesome, uh, inexplicable death scenes where you can feel the gears of fate working (laughs) there. You know, hands. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Final Destination franchise, so of course I appreciated the kills in this movie, and they're good. Well, well, well to me, the thing is, in the Final Destination films, I feel like, though, in those films, there's a little bit more... I'm not going to say seriousness, because a lot of those kills can be really over the top, but you never get the sense that the, that the director is really screwing with the audience... There's a scene in this movie where, uh, I think her name's Sherilyn Fenn. Yeah. Yeah, who played Audrey on Twin Peaks. She's in the movie as the, uh, this girl's neighbor. She has the most ridiculous, oh, like, cock-teasing death ever. <laughs> Every single garbage disposal in the history of cinema has committed murder. Yes. 100% of movie garbage disposals <laughs> yeah. have murdered. If, if Chekhov had been alive, he would have <laughs> added the garbage disposal to his list. So, it's terrible in a funny way. Oh. We didn't even mention how the character's bike from the first scene when she's a child is in exactly the same place 10 years later. It's funny. The kill scenes are good. Jerry O'Connell pops up in one scene. For no reason. Because he he needed a paycheck, I guess, for a day. This is very funny. I am so glad that we have seen this movie twice, and I will probably watch it again. It is very fun. It probably has some rewatchability. I I will definitely grant you that. 
Um, <laughs> so that was Wish Upon. Um, yeah, you know what? Actually, we'll do another four minutes because we got to slap some praise on Pam Greer. Yeah. And coffee is the color. <laughs> um, we saw this on the big screen. Alamo Drafthouse had like a nice 35 millimeter uh, screening of this film. Um, for those of you who haven't seen Coffee, what's wrong with you? Go Just, see it. Because uh, this is a, you know, it's often called a black exploitation movie. Um, the thing to me that's that's always that I love about Coffee though, which I think sets it apart a little bit, is that I think the filmmaker, this guy Jack Hill, really cared about what he was doing in this film. Like he he wasn't trying to make something so goofy or anything that it would just be something you could watch and make fun of like it has a real story to it um and yeah there are some there are a couple of goofy parts i will say there is a cat fight and the cat fight is amazing yeah and it involves pin greer against like four other hoes that she, she just... puts razor blades in her hair so when this trifling hoe goes to pull her hair oh. she sticks her hands in the oh, razor blades oh don't spoil the, the fun <laughs> this movie came out 40 years ago if they haven't seen it by now that's their problem well yeah but maybe not i don't know i, I won't defend that um the pam greer i think is also the reason to see it she's the one that you watch certain black exploitation movies. Like I've seen not all of them, but I've seen the big ones. I've seen Shaft. I've seen Superfly. I've seen the Mac. Um, you know, a lot of guy driven movies. She was the first real heroine star in, in these movies. And she, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it'd be one thing if she just had attitude, but she's a great actress. She's so amazing. And I could use all the time we have left just gushing over how much I love Pam Greer. Yeah. It's, it's aside from, you know, yeah, she's obviously beautiful and very stacked, but she's also just so much great personality uh-huh. and charm and sex appeal. And if she gets angry at you, you better watch out. Yeah, I think basically the audience feels so many different things about her. Pam Greer is able to solicit to elicit so many emotional responses out of the viewer. I mean, yeah. you feel so many things about her. She's funny and she's smart and she's charming and of course she is super duper hot. There's and... a reason this movie made her a star because it's partly because she was given a really terrific character to work with, but you know, she also she what I love is that she just has so much of her own agency. She's constantly figuring out ways to get out of what she, what predicament she's put in. You know, there are times in the movie where she's just kind of like stashed away in like a uh, like a shack or something like that. But whenever they cut to her, she's you know trying to figure things out. She's not just kind of sitting there and you know crying or something like that. She is so strong and so smart and so awesome and. She's the perfect character because you want to discuss literature with her, <laughs> have drinks with her, and, like, have fun and fuck her all at once. Yeah. It, it's not just, you know, uh, what, what was, what's that thing that people sometimes do? Marry, fuck, kill? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't kill her. No, so the first two. Um, we love you, Pam Greer. Yeah. So if you haven't seen Coffee, definitely check it out. We watched it on a bit of a scratchy print. Uh, as far as the audio goes, but that was, I, I could look past that because, 
you know, also the soundtrack for the movie. I've been listening to the soundtrack a lot since we last saw the film because it's amazing. Um, so yeah, thank you, Jack Hill, for making coffee. Um, so I'll have just a couple more that I'll run down because there were a couple of other things I wanted to mention. I have one more too. Okay, well I'll, then we'll get yeah. back to you in just a second. Um, Paddington Two. This is a left turn. This isn't. This isn't uh, a black exploitation star. This is someone much more cuddly and really oh, awesome. The poster is so cute. Yes. Yeah, so Paddington Two is obviously is the sequel to the first Paddington. Uh, by the way, uh, with Oscar nominee Sally Hawkins, um, and I didn't. I didn't grow up with the Paddington books. I I knew they existed. I think as a kid, I might have thought they were a little too dorky. I thought they were a little too maybe square. Which, seeing the movie, they get that tone right. He is kind of a square character. He's a little goody two-shoes. But in a way that is believable. And it's like, in this film, I think you could even go into Paddington 2 without even seeing the first one. Like, they do a really good job at the start of this film, setting up all the characters. And the central plot is like, there's, there's like this book that's kind of like a MacGuffin and Hugh Grant who is amazing. He plays the <laughs> villain of the movie. He's like this almost like almost charming, but tr- still Trumpian actor. Um, and he gets Paddington through a series of things. Like he gets thrown in jail and Paddington is trying to, he has to figure out how do I go through in, stuff in jail? And he somehow connects with the cook played by Brendan Gleeson. And, Oh my God! Just oh, it's such a wonderful movie. It's it's you know immediately I I go for the casting. So if you love Hugh Grant and you love Brendan Gleeson, these are like two of their best performances ever in Paddington Two. I know it sounds crazy, but it's Paddington Two for God's sakes, and it's just because Paddington is such a nice like genuine character. We have so many kids' films that are cynical pieces of garbage. And this is one that is the opposite. It's completely cynicism-free. And, you know, it should be treasured. So, there you go. Your reactions were very adorable when you were watching Paddington 1 on Netflix. Yeah, well, Paddington 1, it was. it's also a very funny movie. Like, the first Paddington, I won't review that now that I've talked about Paddington 2. But the first Paddington is also, if you haven't checked that out, that is on Netflix. And if you're a Doctor Who fan, Peter Capaldi is in it. And he's amazing because he's just like the town curmudgeon. And he's the one who's like, everybody else on the block when Paddington comes around, he's like, oh, Paddington, we love you. Peter Collar's like, bear. <laughs> I don't want this bear here. This bear out here. Um, oh, we have one that we should talk about. I want to talk a little bit more in depth starting now about Phantom Thread. Okay. Because this deserves a little bit more talk. I almost feel like I might need to get another viewing in before I fully, you know, could talk about it even more in depth. But my first impressions are that this is a great film that's also a bit challenging. Is that a good way to describe it? I can see that. Yes. But you, but I think you might have even liked it even more than I did. And, I, and I, again, it's in my top ten somewhere, but probably not in my top five. See, for me... It's either my third or fourth movie of the year. Probably my third. I loved this movie. I loved how the every scene in the movie is drenched with subtext and 
catty drama that's just yes. bubbling underneath the surface. And I loved how complex everyone's relationship was. And I loved how twisted it was. It's Oh, it gets twisted. The way that I described it after we saw it, I it reminded me a bit like the movie Mother, which also yes. came out this year. By the way, fuck you, Razzies, for giving it uh, nominations. That's really stupid. Um, but uh, it, it it has that similar tone of, you say the word caddy, I kind of took it as like, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness in this movie, which is part and parcel when it comes to British people, because yes. British people never say what they do. Oh, our light just turned on. <laughs> that was random. Um, but, uh, you know, it... it and this newcomer, Vicky Crepes, she is, you know you have someone really special when this, you know, she has so much screen time. She probably has almost as much, if not more, than Daniel Day-Lewis, and she stands toe-to-toe with him. Yeah, she is just as good as him. You know a movie's rocking when a scene of a character buttering toast is absolutely riveting. And part of that might be because uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, jacks up the sound in the mix so that you're really hearing that toast being buttered. Uh, or And it's because, again, a lot of times watching a movie, so much of, what, of something that has to work is about framing. And in that scene, you have the framing is that uh, that character that Daniel Day-Lewis plays, who has the name Reynolds Woodcock, <laughs> the best Paul Thomas Anderson character name since Dirk Diggler. Um, <laughs> well, by the way, speaking of connections to Boogie Nights, we have a really fantastic uh, New Year's Eve scene in this as well. Yes. Oh, it's gorgeous. I want If I met him, I would ask him about if he had that scene consciously as a nod back to Boogie Nights, because for those of you who've seen Boogie Nights, one of the most memorable set pieces in that film revolves around uh, New Year's Eve celebration. And bad things happen. And in this case, bad things happen here too, but it's much different. It's like a more, it's a different like styled shot and all that. I think what makes it a bit challenging is because I'm still not sure how I feel about the end of the film. See, I, you're not the only person who said that. I love the ending of the movie. I love it. There's a part of me that thinks I might love it too, but at the same time, it's so, like, fucked. For me, I love the ending because the ending really decisively established for me what the female character gets out of the relationship and she finally yeah. became a co-equal i love this movie go see it it's awesome yeah that's that's a good way of closing out that um and i'm gonna have one more movie to talk about and then we'll close out this segment what uh, about mudbound we were gonna do mudbound too oh okay so we'll do mudbound and then we'll get into uh uh the other film that i wanted to talk about yeah um i forgot that we we watched Mudbound actually a while back. We actually watched Mudbound, I think, gosh, going back to, uh, I think, back last year before the end of the year. So this is actually, we're going back a little bit of ways, people. I hope you don't mind. Yeah, we Mud- think it's important, though, because it's an important movie. It's been nominated for Oscars. Yeah, and also uh, another note, this kind of broke a, a, a tiny glass ceiling. Not a big one, but a tiny one. This is the very first movie to get a nomination for Best Cinematography for a woman. A Which, woman. 
It's crazy. Yeah, which is insane that a woman's never been nominated for best cinematographer before. I almost wish she had been she had been nominated for a better film. Like this is kind of like the Hillary Clinton of nominations. <laughs> I wish it's like as great as Hillary Clinton is. It's like could we've gotten someone a little bit better? Um, yeah. So I years ago I read the book Mudbound and I loved the book, but you didn't remember much from it. Yeah, I remembered my general really positive feeling, but I had forgotten a lot of the specific plot points. I almost quit this movie in the first 45 minutes because it was so overly reliant on voiceover and it felt so uncinematic. I came close to quitting on it, this movie. It, it, was, it was too much voiceover, for sure. It, it, it was trying to juggle also different voiceovers, I think. Yeah. And the problem was, too, the first half of the film, you're cutting between the storyline that's taking place in rural Mississippi... And then another plot line, or kind of like really two, that are happening in World War Two as these as uh, as this white guy and black guy are both fighting, and it just it I, the story keeps moving, but it doesn't have like a focus. It's not till they come back uh, home that it actually becomes like a really captivating film, and it's ironic that like there's an insistence that this movie's directed by a woman. Her name's D D Reese. Um, she made a movie that I wanted to see, which I haven't gotten to yet, called Pariah. Um, she made it a real point how almost all, like all, if not a large part of the crew, were women. So not just the cinematographer, mm-hmm. but other people. Because you have Carrie Mulligan, who I think is the more interesting female character than uh, uh, Mary J. Blige. And, you know, if she gets put to the wayside to focus on... You know, this story involving Garrett Hudland and, uh, I'm blanking on his name. I think his name's Jason, oh, Jason something. Uh, he was, uh, he was Easy e in, uh, Straight Outta Compton. Yeah. And... So it's like, the movie made by women becomes more about men. Get, get, get your time up things right, women. Yeah, so I would agree with that. I thought this movie was very awkwardly structured in the first half, to the point where I came very close to quitting it. But it got better in the second half when it finally felt cohesive and like it was telling one unified story instead of jumping badly between three or four and you different also, stories. And you have a clear antagonist too. Jonathan yeah. Banks, uh, who we all know and love as Mike, he gets to play a character that's not Mike for once <laughs> and is fantastic at it. Um, I mean, I like that there was more, you know, there was more ambiguity to the racial dynamics at times until it all comes to a head. Um, but yeah, with it, I, I got what she was going for, but as you said, I almost wish it had been more cinematic. Yeah. It was obvious that again, I have familiarity with the source material and to me, she definitely struggled to adapt the first half of the book. Yeah, it was definitely a struggle. Um, and now I come to the, uh, the last film that I will talk about tonight which is the documentary Gilbert. Uh, I just watched this yesterday, and I need to talk about it because I am a gigantic Gilbert Gottfried fan. I hope everybody else in America is too. If you're not listening to Gilbert Gottfried or the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, which uh, I know, again, Corey doesn't listen to that, but I am a massive fan of that. I've got a lot of hockey podcasts to listen to. Yeah, but you could let a little heart ruin your heart for 
the... <laughs> you can lend some room for that. No, what's great about this movie, and this is, like... After the Ai Weiwei refugee crisis documentary, <laughs> this is like my favorite documentary of the year. <laughs> this is kind of like the opposite of what, like, you know, last year we had Wiener, the uh, the documentary about Anthony Wiener and his running for mayor, where that felt very awkward and uncomfortable at times, as you're seeing like this family kind of subtly coming apart at the seams as this, you know, real New York character is trying to make something of himself whereas gilbert gottfried you know he has this real persona when he goes on stage and is very vulgar and he didn't always used to be vulgar either in his act like he uh you know he used to work what they call clean like he used to have a pretty clean act and then i think in the last 15 years or so they just started telling dirty jokes left and right but off stage he's just a very quiet you know shy you know, kind of guy who doesn't really like to talk too much. And it took a while for this director to even, you know, get him to agree to do the movie. And in a way you could almost see why, because at times you're, you are literally just watching him like washing his socks and underwear, (laughs) but it's, it's, but he has a real family and it's a real touching portrait of this guy who you usually just think of as Affleck. So that was my review of Gilbert. Okay, so we are going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about our main topic of the of this episode, where we do another kind of thing, which goes back to an episode we decided to do with each other before, you know, in the still Andrew days, um, in those dirt dangerous days. <laughs> of no, uh, you might remember we did an episode where we compared flatliners. Well, we're going to do another comparison episode. That's all I'm going to do to tease this, so stay tuned. 